Thank you very much for inviting me. This is such a great group of people. I was just telling my daughter that if I lived in the area, I would probably hang with you all the time. I know that Leslie Rowland was here last month, and Leslie is an old colleague and friend of mine. Of course, she is the head of the Freedmen and Southern Society Project, so I worked with her for many, many years. And I know that she talked to you about black soldiers. Well, one of the things when you think about black soldiers is, you know, they knew what was going on in the world around them. So did most of the other enslaved people. And I, as I was talking to Ed earlier this evening, in my time at the Freedmen and Southern Society Project, I was looking and becoming familiar with all these thousands, millions of people who had just emerged from slavery. Most of them, something like 75% of them, had never seen a Union soldier until after they were emancipated. So the people that I studied in my first book in Southwest Georgia didn't see their first Union soldier until May of 1865 when some of General Wilson's troops came down. They were headed down to Tallahassee to pester some ex-Confederates. But it leaves a really big question because we also know from the records of those first few months of emancipation that these former slaves had a very sophisticated idea, an understanding of the national political landscape, of the legal system, of civil and criminal law, and they understood themselves not to be just free, but to be civil entities, of people who could now appeal to the law, that they were part of this larger system, uh, a system to which they had been excluded for generations. So that raises a really big question. like. How on earth did they begin to understand this? Where did they get this information? I mean, my undergraduates don't know this, for heaven's sakes. And it's not as if they've been banned from getting an education. So for the last 10 years or so, I'm very slow. And I also like to dig through lots and lots of libraries and archives. This is the problem I've been trying to answer, this question I've been trying to answer. And so what I'm going to give you here tonight is a piece of my next book that I'm working on. It's finally under contract with Metropolitan Press, and I sort of feel a little bit like David Brian Davis. I don't know if you all are familiar with his problems of this and problems of that and problems of the other, mostly of the early revolutionary period. So my next book is not becoming free, but becoming citizens, the political lives of slaves. And so what I'm going to give here, here is just a kind of a preview of, of that project. And so I kind of gave up on the grapevine thing. And so the title for this one is To Begin at the End, Tracing the Political Lives of Slaves. All right. So on Tuesday morning, May 12th, 1861, slavery ended and freedom began in Fort Pickens, Florida. Completed in 1834 and situated at the western end of Santa Rosa Island, a narrow spit of land that separates Escambia Bay from the Gulf of Mexico, Pickens was one of the four forts built to defend Pensacola and its then small navy yard. But by the spring of 1861, Pickens was one of the last bastions of federal power in a newly organized Confederate state. And as such, the fort occupied a special place in the hearts and minds of black Southerners. Shrewd observers of the world in which they lived, and especially attentive to an escalating national political crisis, enslaved Americans looked on places like the dilapidated, undermanned, and ill-equipped Fort Pickens as portals to freedom, ground made hollow by the presence of those who stood for union and against secession. This certainly was the case with eight men, slaves all, who materialized at Fort Pickens on that Tuesday, a month before the war's formal start. And the timing is really interesting to consider here. This was March. This wasn't April. 
Acting on the well-known principle that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, the men shared a belief that the soldiers stationed within had been assigned there for no greater purpose than to, quote, protect them and grant them their freedom. So they're kind of in advance of a lot of people, including Lincoln. So Lieutenant Adam J. Slemmer, the commander of a fort located deep in enemy territory, thought otherwise. Just days earlier, a short-lived truce between federal and Confederate forces at Pensacola had collapsed, leaving an already isolated Fort Pickens all the more vulnerable to an attack of one sort or another. Quote, peaceable relations, as he says there, with his Confederate neighbors was what Slammer wanted above all else. And disabusing his enslaved visitors of their read of what was a swiftly changing political situation, quote, I did what I could to teach them the contrary, Slemmer explained to a superior, he bundled the men up into different groups and delivered them over to civil authorities for a return to their owners. So it was this little scene in which you have these eight men in two parties of four coming to this fort. This is on no one's path to anywhere else. But I kind of envision them knock, knock, knocking at the door. We're here for our freedom. And to do this in March of 1861 suggests that these enslaved people were really well in advance of most of the rest of the nation on this issue of slavery and emancipation. So historians have worked hard to wrench the history of slaves from Jim Crow's grip over the last umpteen years. In fact, we've struggled for most of the 20th century to replace images of submissive and childlike obsequiousness with those of a politically and savvy population capable of producing great change. This work of recovery is most clearly seen in a thoroughly reworked history of civil war and black emancipation. As you heard last month from my friend Leslie Rowland, we are no longer as quick as Lieutenant Slemmer to wash our hands of the black people who visited his fort. Instead, historians credit enslaved Americans alongside presidents, politicians, field commanders, and foot soldiers for bringing about what Abraham Lincoln hailed in his Gettysburg Address as a new birth of freedom. Slavery's demise is no longer the story of white and free protagonists. Black Southerners, we now know, lifted up and transformed what had been a slaveholding nation, even as they lifted themselves free of slavery's chains. The question of who freed the slaves, over which historians argued for decades, has been answered. They really were very much participants in their own liberation. Yet more often than not, our collective envisioning of slavery as it existed before the first volleys of war rang out continues to be that of a mute mechanical muscle shackled to a slaveholder's estate, a people beaten down, pinned into place, and disconnected from the world that circulated around them. What we've missed is what made the enslaved such a formidable force when war erupted. So it's sort of like we have this story but our existing pre-story doesn't line up. There's a disconnect between you know, our understanding and our thinking about people in slavery and people in war. And so you know, we need to kind of bring these things into alignment with each other. So as I want to suggest this evening, those popular and plantation-based scenes of slaves stooped between rows of growing cop and overseers' eyes fixed upon them was but one part of a much larger and more complex productive and political story, one in which black people in chains played a leading role. Indeed, plantation labor marked the beginning, not the end, of black people's duties. They did a whole lot more. 
functioning at one and the same time as the lifeblood, the infrastructure, and the lubricant of American slavery. Bound workers, I think you could think of them as the gears that turn the engine of staple production. So kind of remember that this is a very, very technologically unsophisticated agricultural system. The fanciest equipment were iron plows that were drawn by mule and maybe wagons with turning wheels and a cotton gin. So it was a very, very labor-intensive system in which it needed a lot of human intervention. So slaves were the muscle and the machinery that made slavery work. Slaves sowed, hoed, reaped, and processed astonishing quantities of agriculture commodities, but they also carried the annual crops of cotton, sugar, rice, and tobacco to market, and then they carried the groceries home. They ran errands, they fetched physicians for the sick, they drove white people's carts and carriages, and they herded white people's hogs. They manned the steamboats that plied the southern waterways. They populated those endlessly itinerant gangs that leveled forests, raised levees, tapped pines for pitch, and pounded together thousands of miles of railroad lines. They delivered the mail, which is a really interesting story. They conveyed the dead to their graves, and they spilled out of the slaveholding states by the hundreds, bound with their owners to Boston, New York, London, Liverpool, and other foreign, faraway, and free labor places. Because Lord knows, if you're a slaveholder, you didn't go shopping in New York without your slave. You took your servant with you. So in short, what I've learned from my research is that enslaved Americans were in very literal ways the unsung but intensely human machinery that lay hidden within this booming and global system of production that was the antebellum nation's staple economy. But most important to the case I want to make and to our understanding of the events that unfolded at Fort Pickens a month before the Civil War start all those hundreds of thousands of peripatetic slaves traveled with their eyes and minds wide open. Muscle they may have been to their masters, but slaves were human first. So among the most familiar of that parade of people were the hundreds of thousands who passed every decade through the hands of a slave trader. And so here's kind of a very romanticized image by a Pennsylvania artist of slaves moving from Virginia to Tennessee. My students are always struck by women in white dresses and how clean and neat and tidy everything looks. So this isn't really what was the domestic slave trade was like. This was just someone's rather romanticized image. But constituting a migration that dwarfed by comparison the transatlantic slave trade in North America, which only brought at best 300,000 Africans to North American shores, Nearly a million people were transported across state lines in the 40 years prior to secession. Untold numbers of others were shuttled back and forth within state lines, and many were caught up by both. Such was the magnitude of this process of forced relocation that by 1860, the geographic center of slavery had shifted from its colonial location just south of Petersburg, Virginia, to the western edge of Georgia, somewhere south of Columbus on the Chattahoochee River. But the women and men who trudged along as involuntary participants in this vast repopulating of the southern interior represented only a fractional part of a people who were made by their owners to conduct their lives in near constant motion. Slaves, the archives tell us, walked, trotted, floated, and rode in every conceivable direction. Eclipsed, for instance, by images of coffle lines, which is this, snaking their way toward New Orleans, were those who labored on the south's inland waterways. 
Put to work by captains who preferred the control that slavery gave them, as many as 10,000 black workers stoked boilers, scrubbed decks, waited tables, loaded firewood, and handled stunning amounts of freight. This is a lithograph of a wooding operation. It happens roughly every two hours as steamboats moved up and down the rivers because they can only carry about that many hours of firewood, two to five hours. And they would just pull over to some random wood pile and everybody would jump off the boat, primarily the slave crew, and carry the wood for the boilers back aboard ship. So this goes on constantly. It's just a part and parcel of being an enslaved waterman. So popular were slaves among professional watermen that they occasionally made up the entire rank and file of brown water crews, occupying every position from pilot to steward to cook and deckhand. On the smallest craft, the keelboats, tugboats, ferryboats, and what were known as cotton boxes, which I think pretty much describes them, slaves often made up the whole of the crew. Most enslaved watermen moved on and off the water because they were hired workers, so they would alternate between work on the land and work on the rivers. For some, though, uh, maritime work was life's work, and a good example of this was a man named Simon Gray. He belonged to a Mississippi lumberman, and Gray spent the better part of 20 years rafting logs out of the Yazoo and down the Mississippi to New Orleans. And for most of that time, Gray was his owner's chief boatman, commanding a crew of 20 that was made up of both free people and slaves. So they spent their days jostling for space up and down along one of America's busiest thoroughfares. Enslaved watermen were, as one observer wrote, deeply immersed in a, quote, strangely moving medley made up of workmates and strangers, all of whom carried their personal histories aboard when they embarked on one or another of the South's boat. I like to think of steamboats as sort of a moving Grand Central Station because you've got crew moving across the decks, you've got passengers getting on and off, you're stopping for wood, you're stopping for provisions, so there's kind of this constant churn you know, on and off the boat connecting the enslaved watermen to the land even as the boats are moving up and down the rivers. So it's sort of a geometric problem which baffles a historian's mind. But despite their greater visibility, both to their contemporaries and to their historians, enslaved boatmen, again, make up but a part and probably a small part of the population of slaves who were routinely unleashed by their owners for purposes of work. Travel on a master's command was as much a part of a day's labor for those who worked on the land as it was for those who worked on the water. Take, for example, the South's vast army of enslaved personal servants, we think about domestic servants as staying in the big house. Yes and no. Attached most usually to those most able and willing to travel afar, abroad, and a lot, the wealthiest of America's slavehold, who were the, you know, so they were the wealthiest of America's slaveholders, domestic servants kept thousands of slaves on the road and on the go. Confounding those popular images of slavery and its human geographies, travel in the capacity of a cook, a nurse, child's nurse, or a personal servant, regularly launched in slave laborers, often but not exclusively women, across the continent and across oceans. Every spring, for instance, slaves and their owners poured out of southern seaports, bound for summer residences in what were then hotbeds of abolitionist activity, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Syracuse, and Newport, Rhode Island. So here's a manifest out of the Port of Savannah 
that shows us three different women belonging to three different owners, um, two from Savannah, one from Selma, Alabama, and they are um, embarking on the steamship Augusta out of Savannah for New York. Others set their sights on more foreign destinations, stretching itineraries, and with them, enslaved people's worlds to include London, Liverpool, Paris, Gibraltar, Constantinople, and Rome. They were widely traveled. A guy named Sindaham Moore of Greene County, Alabama, took his enslaved valet with him to Veracruz when war broke out with Mexico. Quote, at first he seemed a little homesick, Moore wrote of the man shortly after they joined up with Zachary Taylor's command. Quote, but he is better satisfied now. I think he eventually dies of something terrible. So here's another one. Note where they're going. They're leaving the port of New Orleans and they're going to the port of... I'm going to butcher my French, Marseille. They're headed to Europe. They're headed to France. And there's one, two, three, four, five slaves. It looks like a mother and her children. But an 11-year-old is going to remember something of the trip. A six-year-old is going to remember something of this trip. This is great information. I found this on Ancestry, by the way. As colorful and cosmopolitan as ladies' maids and valets might have been, it was enslaved Teamsters, though, who were the most enduringly and incessantly mobile of America's enslaved population. They roll through travelers' narratives, plantation diaries, and newspaper stories. They clatter in and out of court records and surface repeatedly as objects of legislation, regulation, and public debate. Teamsters embodied the Southern economy and virtually nothing went anywhere without taking at least one ride in the bed of a black man's wagon. Indeed, without black Teamsters and the services they rendered, staple production on the scale that enriched free Southerners, Northerners, and foreigners alike would have been all but technologically impossible. Staple crops are nothing without a market, and all of the South's great staples needed human assistance to make those trips. Again, as I impress on my students, cotton can't walk. Thus, in the most literal and quotidian way, Teamsters and their vehicles were the machinery that made their masters rich. Joined by non-slaveholders, small farmers, and others who had no choice but to do their own driving, slaves with their wagons threaded the South into a swiftly emergent global economy. It was work they had no choice to do, but on the road, on the go, and almost always on their own. So here's an example of an enslaved teamster. And I pieced this together from the receipts made out by the merchant in Petersburg, Virginia, with whom this master who lived in Warren County, North Carolina, did business. And the master left us at least three years of these receipts that showed Moses primarily, but occasionally a couple other slaves, um, Ben and Neil, and I think there may have been a few more. Look at how often Moses is making that trip to Petersburg. The letter is dated in the middle column, and then the third column from the left is the date of the receipt, and usually the date of which he left Petersburg, so you can get a good sense of how long it took him to make the trip, and it was roughly about a two-week round trip. And then some of the cargoes that he carried going south, going north, he usually carried tanned hides and some other kind of um, rough goods that his owner was producing on his North Carolina plantation. And then, of course, because it's a multi-day trip, he needs food for himself. 
he needs food for his team. So he ends up, he always carries traveling money. And so the final column is the traveling money for his return trip. So this is the money that the merchant put into Moses's pocket in order for him to go home to Warren County, Virginia. So this is just one man making this constant looping trip. And he came to know that road quite well. Although slaves hauled everything from, as you can see, really everything, from fine china and corpses to their master's cash and correspondence, it was not uncommon for a slave like Moses to carry letters as well. Their chief occupation was to move the South Staples. So rice, sugar, and tobacco all get their start in the back of a wagon. But it was cotton that came to dominate the overland traffic. Cotton, as you all know, is the big economic engine of the antebellum and, frankly, 19th century South. Piled high in the beds of two-wheeled carts, jersey wagons, farm wagons, and homemade contraptions that were known colloquially as road wagons. I don't know what the alternative would be, but we'll stick with road wagons. Cotton poured off the plantation and onto the roads at the close of every harvest season. Shipping usually began in November and continued into the following spring as planters tried to balance road conditions, weather, and prospective prices against the availability of labor. And during these months, it was not at all unusual for long, lumbering lines of wagons to clog the South's roads, sometimes to the point of crowding out other traffic. In a rolling reminder of a national commitment to cotton and its profits, hundreds of thousands of wagons, quote, each managed by its Negro driver, and quote, sallied forth every harvest, charting choruses for the nearest shipping or marketing center. It was a sight that never failed to capture attention. In late November 1828, a rider for the Augusta-based Georgia Courier marveled at having, quote, counted near sunset 151 wagons in town. Augusta's not a big town in 1828. The day before, the same rider added, there had been no fewer than, quote, 200 wagons on Broad Street alone. In nearby Camden, South Carolina, it was the same story. There the streets were, quote, literally choked with wagons, carts, and all various vehicles ever made use of in the conveyance of produce and merchandise. Writing 20 years later, in the late 1840s, a shopkeeper in the diminutive hamlet of Lumpkin, Georgia, where's Katie? Katie's been to Lumpkin. It's very diminutive, isn't it? <laughs> it's kind of like blink and you miss it. Watched in awe as, quote, dozens of loads of cotton passed his window every day, each with its own, quote, Negro driver. By the 1850s, when annual production of cotton nearly doubled from about 2.5 million bales to just shy of 5 million bales, wagons were everywhere, grinding deep ruts in the roads as they jangled along, whips cracking and animals snorting, before washing up on the outskirts of Natchez, Vicksburg, Memphis, and Montgomery. During one of his several tours through the slaveholding states, Frederick Law Olmsted, probably a familiar name here, counted wagon after wagon rolling away from plantations, two or three, sometimes together, drawn by three or four pairs of mules or oxen, and each, once again, managed by, quote, a Negro driver. The load is commonly five bales of 400 pounds each, Olmsted continued, and continues and comes in this tedious way over execrable roads, distances of 100 or more miles. Indeed, so deeply entrenched was the use of enslaved teamsters to move the South's people and products that over time it came to acquire its own vernacular. These were all cargo slaveholders would announce time and again in their diaries and their journals and letters that had been, were, or were about to be delivered by Negro. They make it so easy for me. So here is 
Memphis in the 1850s. Front Street, so it's right down on the waterfront. And notice all the wagons clogging the roads. So no doubt, you're thinking what I've been thinking all along while researching this project. That putting slaves into motion like this was a pretty risky business if you're a slaveholder. I mean, these are the guys who are like creating pass laws, banning slaves from reading and learning to read and write, from congregating in groups bigger than like two without white supervision. So you're thinking, what on earth is going on here? You know, slaves are people. They were first and foremost human beings. They had eyes, ears, mouths, and minds of their own. But on the other hand, you can't profit from cotton and rice and tobacco and all this other good stuff if you can't get it to market. Talk about being between a rock and a hard place. So having made the decision to subordinate control over slaves to commerce and the profits that it offered, planters went ahead anyway, plunging the people on whom they most heavily depended into what amounted to a sea of subversion every time they sent them abroad on an errand. Whether these slaves were bound for town with a load of cotton or across the ocean to Liverpool or London, they found themselves circulating through worlds that teemed with new possibilities. I mean, just imagine, you know, we've all gone on vacation. Think of what we experience when we go on vacation. You know, even if you can't speak the language, you can watch and see what's going on. Cities with their polychromatic and culturally complex populations offered especially rich educational, associational, and seditious environments. All a teamsters or ladies made had to do was to stand attentive on a street corner to pick up scraps of the world's news, while overnight stops in taverns or adjacent campgrounds. Mules have to have feed and water, and so there's kind of like informal community campgrounds throughout the South. Those stopping points allowed slaves further opportunity to eavesdrop, to observe, and to learn. Compressed as they were among hundreds of passengers, many of them northerners and foreigners traveling through the south on business or pleasure, boatmen enjoyed similar opportunities to learn and observe. They're trapped on these little boats with all these hundreds of people. Some of these steamboats carried as many as 500 to 600 passengers. But in fact, slaves didn't have to go very far or go for very long to seize for themselves important educational opportunities. Roads were rarely empty, which means that even a trip down the road to a neighbor's estate, to a neighboring plantation, could open up to the enslaved what so much of slaveholders' law had been composed to withhold, which were opportunities to learn for themselves what was going on in the world around them. So released into the open by owners who could not hold onto the workers too tightly, because if they did, they would strangle their big, gorgeous golden goose, nothing much was off enslaved people's agendas, and nothing much escaped their attention when they were doing all this work. Restrained only by a prudence that was wrought by their always precarious social and political position, they understood they couldn't push too hard or be too open in their inquisitiveness. Slaves still used their trips around town, across the continent, and over the oceans to obtain what slaveholders' laws otherwise denied them, which was geographical, intellectual, and political educations. You know, as Henry Box Brown, who was a fugitive slave who left us a very rich narrative, revealed after achieving his freedom, it was on such trips that he and his brothers came to know something about the society in which they lived. Teamsters, for instance, became experts in the South's unmarked and unmapped road system. This is where it connects right back into your interest in Civil War history. 
So they were so well informed about the roads. You know, these were not roads that had signs. That when strangers got lost wandering through the South, they fell into the habit of asking slaves for directions. So some of the more famous, if you've read Olmsted or James Redpath's narratives, um, they rarely let a day go by, it seems, without stopping to ask a slave how to get from here to there. Later, after the war broke out, Union soldiers did the same, did they not? Tapping into enslaved people's hard-won geography when maps were not immediately forthcoming. So the slaves become, the Teamsters become kind of this repository of geographic information. The knowledge that enslaved people accumulated through master commander travels didn't stop with just the landscape. They carefully mapped and monitored a widening ideological and political divide too, learning about the Whigs, the Know-Nothings, the Republicans, and the Democrats, and they've actually, we actually have them leaving this information in scattered bits of writing. They came to know who might be their allies and who most likely were not. They formed informal political clubs and reading clubs illicit organizations that cropped up under their owners' noses in Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Tennessee. On a plantation near Holly Springs, uh, Mississippi, the slaves evaluated, this was a wonderful episode, a enslaved visitor came and dropped by the quarters and they all got together and they openly discussed the different ability of northern and southern soldiers to hit whatever they were aiming at. And they came to a rather, for them, helpful consensus that northerners were far better sharpshooters than any southern boy. I think it probably ended up that way, didn't they? Called that one pretty right, didn't they? So others talked incessantly about freedom. So as an enslaved teamster patiently explained to a journalist to whom he was giving a lift. William Webb, a slave whose owner was in the habit of leasing him out to different employers, spent much of the 1850s moving from plantation to plantation throughout the Mississippi Valley. Tennessee one year, Mississippi the next, maybe Kentucky after that. With it, each relocation, Webb would take his time to make friends and eventually allies of slaves who started out as strangers, you know, co-workers, but new ones, painstakingly developing them and deliberately assembling a political machine, and he talked about it this way, that by the end of the decade stretched by his estimation from New Orleans to Nashville. I mean, all these different people he befriended up and down the Mississippi Valley. He does it very carefully and he does it for very explicitly political purposes. And by 1856, they were holding late night rallies in support of John C. Fremont, who was the first Republican to run as a presidential candidate. These guys were absolutely tuned in to the national political discourse. Others, however, were not willing to wait. Taking what they had heard and learned through work, slaves began to leverage their own liberation from these experiences they had on the road. Some, like a female house servant that her owner, Richard Arnold, hauled every spring from Savannah to Providence, Rhode Island, conveniently missed the boat one fall that would have carried her back south. Last seen, she was headed to Boston. Another woman, Marie, which I actually really like Marie. She's one of my heroines. She deigned to come home from a long trip abroad. I think her owners took her because she was a cook that they really liked to Paris or somewhere in France. They stay for about three months and they come home and they're kind of worried about what Marie has learned while she's abroad and, you know, because France is free territory. So they took to locking her in the Baton Rouge jail every night. They would take her out in the morning to come home and cook for him. Then they would put her back in the jail every night. That didn't slow Marie down at all. 
She sued for her freedom before a Baton Rouge court. She also asked for her back wages, which I thought was really beautiful. And the court agreed. They didn't give her her back wages. They did give her her freedom because of the time she had spent living on the free territory in France. So she very clearly took this experience that came to her only because her masters couldn't imagine going abroad without their favorite cook and flipped that into freedom. After three years abroad, during which trip he had walked the streets of Europe's most famous cities, visited with wage workers in Germany, listened as politicians wrangled about the future of the French Republic, and was treated as free always, a slave named David Dorr had hit his limit. Within weeks of his return, his and his owner, he never talks about his owner as a narrative. You'd think he was just all by himself in Europe, but he wasn't. He went with his owner as his valet. But within weeks of his return, the return to New Orleans, Dorr took leave of his owner, and he abandoned slavery for a new life and freedom in Ohio. So by the late 1850s, what we see is this groundswell movement. You know, so we're not talking about people who are inert and just biding their time. This is where I disagree a little bit with W.E. Du Bois in his opening chapters, The Black Reconstruction, because he argues that only slaves who were literate, kind of you know, elite slaves, could function as leaders and lead the rest of the slaves to freedom. And he said, the rest of them, they can't really do much. But the archives are telling a different story. And what the archives are telling us is that there is this growing impulse, movement, mobilization, not in an organized sense, but in a very individual sense of the nation's slaves. So the people I'm studying were no more discouraged by that lack of formal literacy than any other urban mechanic or northern immigrant. They were not at all deterred by their legal status as someone else's prized property, but they were slaves who had begun obtaining a civil and social education via these face-to-face -face conversations, overheard words, and they had begun to imagine a more perfect union, one that ideally would be completely free of slavery. Made up of disparate but interconnecting, overlapping, intersecting human threads, theirs was an insurgency that from slaveholders' perspective was as frustratingly shapeless as it was forbidding. So this is really a project of a lot of imagery. So, you know, one of the images I have in my mind is a hydra. You know, so these many-headed hydras can't lop off their heads. They don't die. They're everywhere. And so I think of this as sort of hydra-like, curling along county roads, through city streets, across the decks of all these steamboats, kind of an amorphous congregation that thrived in workers' camps, on western gold fields, because a big part of the story, too, are the slaves who were carried by their owners to the western Sierra to mine gold, in plantation slave quarters, and in the beds of black man's wagons. This is the horse market in Sonora, California. Notice the cosmopolitan, multicultural, multinational character of the people in this watercolor, including the black man in the Cracker Jack top hat in the far right. So it was a combustible creation that slaveholders by the late 1850s, they could no longer ignore this. I mean, this is happening under their noses. They're not stupid people. So tackies. An aggrieved overseer said of the man who drove his wagon in what was a thinly veiled reference to enslaved Jamaican who had unleashed an early age of rebellion. This was, gosh, who was that big slaveholder on Argyle Island on the Savannah River? Y'all know who I'm talking about. But anyhow, it was his overseer in 1858 who made this comment about tackies. 
Others quipped that their personal servants were really spies in disguise. Quote, a copper-colored Count Fosco quipped, one mistress half-jestingly exclaimed, liking her husband's personal valet to a fictional international spy. Republicans fumed others, who in the waning days of a decade knew that the social and political bill was coming due, and it was a debt that they had run up for having profited so long in this particular way from black people's labor. But I think it was a Georgia slaveholder named Richard Lyon, however, who cut straight to the chase. Slaves, he growled in a very long and hot letter. As war clouds were gathering on the horizon, talked too much, they listened too much, and they just knew too much. Worst of all, he went on to explain slaveholders in their relentless quest for cotton's profits had helped make them that way. It was owners, after all, who had created the conditions that turned enslaved strangers into friends, friends then into allies, and then enabled them all to fill their heads with new ways of thinking and doing. To Lyon, such master-made congregations were a political disaster. They were, in his words, nothing short of quote, his words, a regular convention at which all the Negroes will be ably and fully represented. So he understood this as a political problem. It wasn't a problem just of commerce. It wasn't a problem of race. It wasn't a problem simply of control of a subordinate people, but it was a political problem. Lyon was unique, though, in his outspokenness. Most slaveholders refused to openly admit that they had been pushed to the limits by slaves. Secession, they insisted, was meant to protect themselves from slavery's enemies to the North and the South. To say otherwise and to place the blame on their own workers would have been to call into question, kind of presents an existential problem, the ideological and racial foundations of American slavery. To deny everything for which slaveholders had stood for and would soon die for. Yet, in taking a longer view and a different view of slavery's history, one that opens up a more granular understanding of the laborers who made cotton and its sister commodities possible, this talk and the project from which it's drawn suggests we might want to consider our earlier political history. Slaves emerged from the archives as a formidable force, a people who had within reach the means to change fundamentally and forever, and we know they pull it off, the rule of slaveholders' cruel and brutal game. As teamsters, boatmen, miners, millers, and ladies' maids, as world travelers, learners, and observers, and as all that muscle and human machinery that made slavery work, enslaved women and men had fashioned themselves into freedom's new face, even as slavery continued to thrive. Because slavery thrived, indeed. Like William Webb, who had used his master-commanded mobility to forge a multi-state assemblage of slaves, arguing urgently as he did that, quote, we need to spread the faith, he told his colleagues. We must make a movement. We must tell another that we expect to be free. So America's bound workers were dreaming and scheming well before the war starts toward a more perfect union. They were doing this long before those opening rounds arched over Charleston's harbor. And like the eight black men who materialized on Lieutenant Slammer's Florida doorstep, they knew what they wanted, and more importantly, they knew how to get it. Kind of maybe that helps us think about why we have 180,000 men who joined the Union Army, and why we get to that point where we have 180,000 black men joining the Union Army, and why we get to the point in 
the fall of 1862 and then January 1st of 1863 that Abraham Lincoln issues an Emancipation Proclamation because that certainly, we all know, that wasn't his position when he gave his first inaugural address back in February of 1861. Then he said, like, you know, chill out, Confederacy. We'll deal with the slavery thing through constitutional means. He wasn't talking about immediate emancipation. But by 1863, he was. And we know that slaves are pushing quickly. As soon as this war breaks out, they're going to Fortress Monroe. They're running for Union lines. They're volunteering their services to federal soldiers. They are serving as kind of human maps before we get, like, real maps. And I think there's a logic behind that, that in order to be able to act on that information, first they have to acquire that information. You mentioned, to begin with, the um, work on the railroads, but you didn't really pursue that. I'm curious both how the rapid spread of railroads affected the carts as transportation and how what you mentioned may or may not change the usual image of the Irish labor force. That is that is a great question and perfectly timed because I'm just finished writing that whole second end of chapter, so it's more or less fresh in my mind. So we know that the South started building railroads in the 1830s, and they got a you know they got a few miles done, and then everything came to a screeching halt with the Panic of 1837. I mean, everybody goes bust, banks go bust, credit dries up. And nothing really happens through the 1840s. But then as the national economy and the cotton economy especially begins to resuscitate and reinvigorate by the end of the 1840s, we see a massive burst of railroad construction in the antebellum South. And in fact, the South is laying more miles of track in the 1850s than are being laid in the North or any other region of the nation. In the first wave of railroad building, there was a use of Irishmen. but Irish are ornery, and they're free workers. So if they don't get paid on time, they can go on strike. And they make demands, and they don't show up for work. And so by the time railroads come back, you know, the building returns in the 1850s, most railroad companies have turned almost wholly to enslaved labor. So they still have some free wage labor, but they tended to be the masons, the people who did kind of the really skilled metalworking and stonework, design work, engineering work. But the vast majority of the builders were slaves. They were often hired slaves, too. So like William Webb, they would go to this job and then to that job and this railroad and that railroad, and then their master would call them home to make crops, and they'd go back to another railroad. So there's this kind of constant circulation. Richard Sterbin and a few others, there's, it's hard to get a really good accounting for how many slaves worked on railroads, were building railroads, because there's the builders and then there are the maintenance of way workers, which is a new term I learned, but the guys who keep the railroads in good repair after they've been constructed. But anywhere from 10 to 20,000 slaves at any one time were involved in railroad building. And so this is part of this acceleration in the 1850s. So we're growing more cotton, more people moving cotton, more people on steamboats, more steamboats, you know, all of this railroad building. We'll get to California and the gold mining too. That's starting in 1849. You really see that movement west. But railroads don't go everywhere. 
And so it shortens some trips, but most of the railroads run, you know, there's the big, the Memphis to Charleston line. There's a number of lines in Georgia. Georgia does a really good job of building railroads. I think there's really only one significant line in Alabama. That's the, starts at Mobile and runs north and kind of tips into Mississippi before it goes on up to Jackson, Tennessee, and then on north but mostly kind of mid-south line. So you know, when you think about where the cotton belt is, you know, a lot of central <laughs> Alabama, southwest Georgia, west Tennessee, Mississippi, most of those places really don't, you know, there might be one rail line, but it's like a half state over. So, you know, I've been following this planter, Francis Perry Leak, in northern Mississippi. He's got this place outside of Holly Springs, was the one that was visited by the slave with all the news about, you know, the shooting capabilities of northerners. You know, in the early years of his journal, in the 1840s, his slaves would have to haul cotton from this Holly Springs plantation all the way to Memphis. But then as the railroad begins to creep east, once it gets to Moscow and then LaGrange, he can haul straight north. And when the railroad comes up finally through the middle of Mississippi, then it shortens even more. But it's still a day's drive. It never gets much closer than that. So the railroads make a difference, but at the same time, they put more workers into motion in the building and maintaining, and they don't eliminate the need for Teamsters. They shorten the trip, but they're still out there on these roads going places and doing things. Well, I realized there was a fugitive slave law. With all these slaves running around, and then you had some freemen too, and when you look at the description they have, they have an age, maybe height, maybe a bit of their color. Did you carry papers on you to show who you belong to and that you were a freeman or you were a slave and who you belong to? Yeah, they had to carry papers, so they had passes. The tendency is to think of passes as a way to restrict movement, but I think it's better to think of passes as a way to regulate movement. So we all carry driver's licenses, or we ought to. But that doesn't stop us from driving our cars. It just enables us to drive our cars legally, or at least not get busted for not having a license. And so I think passes work a lot of the same way. So like all those receipts um, for Moses, the slave in North Carolina, was you know, shuttling back and forth between Warren County and Petersburg, he carried an envelope or papers from his master to the merchant, and that was sort of his transit pass. Slaves who carried letters until postage for first-class mail didn't really drop to have a reasonable rate until the middle of the 1840s. It had been very expensive up until then, but you see the rate of postage for first-class mail course, private correspondence dropping in the 1840s, kind of in response to Americans' movement westward. But up until then, slaves would carry mail. And so you would see letters, the wrappers on envelopes would say who the dressy was, and then their address, and then a line below it, instead of having a stamp in the upper right-hand corner, it would say, by Joe, by Moses, by John. And so the letter itself became his pass. Yeah, it was really great. I mean, they would send them miles. I mean, you know, many hundreds of miles. You know, and so it'd be really easy as a historian to trap these movements of these, you know, these informal letter carriers because you know who the sender is and you know who the recipient is and you have both their addresses. So you go to Google. It's like, wow, that was 180 miles. Yeah, I was interested in the story about the slave who was in France for like three years yeah. and managed to get herself ruled free, which seems contrary to Dred Scott. 
Do you know what was the legal basis for that? Um, well, actually, Dred Scott was very successful until he ran into Roger Tyne. There's been some really good work done on the St. Louis Circuit, Circuit Court, Superior Court, I think, that handled a lot of those cases. But it was really the same basis, that if a slave lived a certain amount of time on free territory, and that was Dred Scott's claim, because his master, who was a military man, had taken him up to, what is it, Fort Snelling, and you know, what becomes Minnesota. Well, then leaves him there. But the, sort of the same deal with Marie. But this was in the, I'm trying to remember the date of this case. I think it was in the 1830s. But shortly after her case, the Louisiana legislature kind of closed off that possibility. And so they made it impossible then for slaves to sue for manumission based on living in a free territory. They closed that one off. That remains an open possibility for slaves who go before the St. Louis Circuit Court, Superior Court, whichever court it was. And so Dred Scott is really one in a long list. In fact, there's a really good website. The court has a great website that has digitized just hundreds of these cases of slaves who sue for their freedom because they had lived in free territory for whatever the threshold amount of time was. I'm interested in how the masters kept control over their slaves when they were going like in Europe and these other places. Why didn't the slaves just up and run? Now, did they have a system? Well, I know the communists used to have this system. When somebody was like an attache in Paris or someone, they had to leave part of their family back in Russia. Did they have a similar system to that where the slave, if he was married, had to leave his family? There was that, or what were the control mechanisms they had to keep them from running and leaving when they were out of the tight control that the Southerners had over their slaves? That is a really great question. And it's a question that's kind of perplexed historians for a long time. Also the same kind of related to that is the question of why don't we see great big slave uprisings? You know, Nat Turner is the last one in 1831. And we don't see another giant slave uprising until effectively the Civil War, if you kind of follow Steve Hahn's argument. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that they do have families at home. You know, and it's not like it was a institutionalized process, so it wasn't they were quite not quite as organized as the Soviets. But we're talking about people who were people. They had families, they have loved ones, they have children. And what would it mean to run away? You know, what are the costs associated with running away? What are the personal and human costs of running away? And this also explains why we don't see very many fugitive slaves, and most of them who run to the north are young, single men. So they're not leaving behind their families, they're not leaving behind children, they're not leaving behind husbands and wives. It's not the master so much, putting up some sort of barricade that keeps slaves from running away, it's the slaves themselves come back because that's where their family is. So like this Richard Arnold guy whose slave, I think her name was Marie, was the one who made a couple trips, summer trips to Providence or Newport, Rhode Island, wherever he had a summer house. And then after you know a couple trips, she just kind of disappeared over the horizon about time when their family was headed back to Savannah. But he had another enslaved woman, Mum Phoebe, and Mum Phoebe made that trip every year for 20 years. But Mum Phoebe had an extensive family back in Low Country, Georgia. And so she went back for her family. Marie was a young woman. I don't think she was attached to anybody. And so for her, the costs of staying north were not as steep as they would have been for Mum Phoebe. We've pretty much decided that that's 
the explanation because no one's going to buy the idea that slaves went home because they loved Massa. That doesn't quite work. And we certainly don't see any proof of that after emancipation when they pretty much say, bye. You know, so the explanation has to be different. And, and the explanation that we've lit on is that yeah, there was families. We also know that there is the growth of families because, I mean, look, there was maybe 300,000 slaves in mainland North America at the time of the Revolution. And by, you know, what it was, I'm not going to do the math, but by 1860, there's 4 million. And the transatlantic slave trade ends in 1809 so that there's no new slaves being imported from Africa. So this is all natural reproduction. There are a lot of families. So I think it's really this family, these personal emotional connections that help explain why people don't leave. So I know that David Dorr, for instance, he wasn't married. So David Dorr is like, he didn't have those kinds of personal ties. So, you know, he gets back to New Orleans. He tells Master, he said, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Yeah. I mean, it didn't take him long at all. <laughs> like, land in New Orleans and bye. Yeah, with regard to the Dred Scott decision, I had always, without having looked into it in any detail, I regarded it as a real curiosity that here we have a slave with the legal standing to sue in federal court. And I thought, you know, really, that's kind of remarkable. But I hadn't looked into it beyond that. Now, what you say is there were hundreds of these cases, so it was a common thing. Be curious about a little more background on that, but the other thought that I had is looking at slave systems around the world, slavery having been practiced in all times and places among peoples of all races, colors, creeds, continents, and so on, are there really parallels to that? Do you find slaves in Britain, uh, British possessions, French, Spanish, Portuguese, or in non-Western systems, slaves in the Arab world, slaves in India, slaves in China, slaves anywhere, slaves in Africa having some kind of legal standing in their legal systems to sue their masters? Or is that unique to the United States? I don't think it's unique to the United States, but I think it takes different forms in different political and judicial systems. There's been some interesting work done on kind of that gray area between full slavery and full emancipation in the British Caribbean, where slaves were able to use the courts and the laws to advance their own causes. A guy named Brian Owensby at the University of Virginia, he works on early, early colonial slavery in Mexico and has written a fascinating book on the ways in which slaves used the Inquisition, used the church courts to bring pressure to bear on masters who are abusing them excessively, oppressing them excessively. But the problem they ran into is if the court decided that they were making things up, then that Inquisition court came down on them kind of hard. But there was a lot of those kinds of cases. Ann Twitty at the University of Mississippi has just recently finished a book on these court cases. And, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting her name. She's at Auburn University, has also written specifically on the Dred Scott in that pool of St. Louis cases. And thinking about part of this is how does this legal knowledge move around? How do enslaved people even know that they can bring these cases? How do they find the lawyers who can argue in their behalf before these courts. And so there's been some really interesting work done on this, but I don't think it's unique to the U.S. I think slaves are always very, very adept at finding these interstices and these cracks that they can excavate and exploit. There's an active conversation today about the mechanisms for the spread of information and misinformation. And so I'm, I'm wondering if there are any parallels or lessons that can be drawn from this period of history to, that can be applied today. 
well, I know why China's scared of Google. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think there really is. To me, there are just many lessons that can be drawn from this. One, we can change the world without even having to be card-carrying members of anything. It doesn't take a formal organization. If we all decide we're tired of something, we stand up and we act on our own initiative, we can make great change. So that's one big lesson here. But the other one is this movement of not, not only just power, you know, that's been, we've talked about that, but I think we can really see this in practice, that knowing how other things work in other places, knowing geography, knowing the social geography as well as the physical geography, this is gold. And we see slaves using it. We really see them using it during the war. When you think about all the slaves that head for Fortress Monroe and, you know, and the slaves who choose not to go because they know that it's too far or too risky or there's, other, you know, things going on. Or maybe, you know, the Robert Small story, he's just, you know, so fascinating. He's like, hey, by the way, hey, Union Navy, you see those Confederates are over there. You know, you can shoot at them over there. So I think politicians should pay attention. But one of the reasons I was smiling is that knowledge isn't a football either. And this is a problem that I don't know quite how to deal with. And I'm usually the one who brings it up. But how many of you have played that, is it telephone or telegraph? They have party game? Telephone. telephone. Okay. I could whisper something in your ear. You'd whisper it in his ear. And by the time it came back around to Gordon or to Diane, who knows what it would be? And so there's that problem. And there's been linguists that have talked about this. And so I will say something, you will hear it through your filters, and then you will turn around and it'll be different coming out of your mouth into someone else's ears. So every time it passes through a head, it's open to change. And I'm not sure how to deal with that. I mean, it would take a lot of very, very specific information where I could literally track a conversation as it moves across a landscape. But I do know that there's evidence of miscommunication. So runaway slave, and it shows up in one antebellum slave narrative, he's told by someone that the quickest, and probably, I think they were probably right, but that the quickest way to get to Britain from central Georgia or wherever he was taken off from was to go to New Orleans. And he was probably right because there's a lot of direct shipping in and out of New Orleans to Europe. But he gets down to New Orleans and he runs into some Teamsters and they say, oh no, you need to go to New York. So he turns around and he makes his way up the Mississippi Valley. So there's kind of like this underlying problem here that I'm not sure what the hell they were talking about. But I do know that it was enough out there that there was a growing shared understanding of this larger political landscape, knowledge of this nation, knowledge of kind of the whole continent for the people who were traveling back and forth between the East Coast and the West Coast to mine gold or survey or whatever they were doing out there. One of the distinctions between the case in New Orleans and Dred Scott may have been that the proceeding in New Orleans would have been under the Napoleonic Code. I have not read that case, so I can't say that's, yeah, that's the distinction, but that was, may be yeah. why. That may be what it was, yeah. Why. And so was the Napoleonic Code more or less overwritten or revised by the mid-30s-ish? I'd have to go back and read Judah Schaefer about Louisiana law. But I do know that not long after this case, um, Louisiana closed off that particular loophole. So, but, I mean, Louisiana was kind of in advance and a lot of things like that, like booting out all the free people of color. 
I'm curious, you mentioned Marie, but it seems like most of the watermen and teamsters, etc., were men. Were men the primary agents of this political knowledge, or what role did women play? I think women are particularly important because, you know, the slave manifests, which you can find on Ancestry, they're all there for everybody to look at. Ancestry is purchased and digitized them, so you can go through them all. We have pretty good runs for Savannah and for New Orleans. And when you look at the Savannah ones, looking at the outward bounds for people who are leaving the port of Savannah for some place that wasn't a slaveholding state. So I don't care, just go. Something like 80% of those slaves who left that way out of the port of Savannah were women. And there were women who worked on steamboats. And there were a lot of women who traveled as ladies' maids. And, you know, yeah, if you've got little kids and you're a slaveholding mistress, you didn't go take your kids traveling on, or even to town on your own. You took the servant with you. So there's a lot of women who are kind of traveling around in the South with their mistresses. But they made up the vast majority of the slaves who go to, as I like to put in my alliterative way, to these foreign and faraway places. So the only two real exceptions to that is the early 1840s to Cuba. There's a little burst of outward migration of masters and slaves to Cuba, because the Cuba was recruiting people to help them build their sugar industry. So it was men going, you know, mechanics, engineers, and that kind of like. And then in the early years of the gold rush, because they were being taken, the men were being taken to California because they could dig gold. But after that, you see more and more women going. So I kind of like to think that the women were the foreign ambassadors. <laughs> yes, and in fact, there's a really interesting essay by my friend Thavolia Glimpf, who maybe you guys should have Thavolia come talk because she's finishing up a fantastic project. Has she been here? Oh, you need Thavolia because Thavolia has been doing this project on black women in the Civil War, and Confederates don't want them anymore, especially in the late years. They know slavery's done, so women have no value to them. The Union Army hasn't much use for them, you know, other than a few laundresses, and so they literally are getting kicked to the side, and they're dying, and they're washing up into refugee camps up and down the Mississippi Valley. A lot of them are just, you know, very impromptu camps. But he also has this essay that came out in, what's that fairly new Civil War journal, the one out of Penn State? Y'all know what it is, but you can find it. Civil War Journal. Civil War Journal? Yeah, okay. Or Journal of the Civil War Era. That's what it is. And she's got an essay in there called Rose's War. And Rose is a enslaved woman, belongs to some nabob in the low country, South Carolina. And as far as um, Thavoli can tell, Rose was one of these women who traveled abroad. But during the Civil War, Rose organizes her own private insurrection. And so women use this information. And, you know, and I think, you know, the next story, so the next generation of historians, I think, can really should be connecting this to what people are doing during the war. We have glimpses. Um, Abraham Galloway was, I think, he was a boatman. And we know what Galloway does during the Civil War. He ends up working for the Pinkertons in the Mississippi Valley. He's a spy for the Union Army. He's just a fascinating figure. And so I think there's way more to this story. We like to think about you know, these black political leaders of early Reconstruction as being the educated slaves, the elite slaves. Maybe some of them were these well-traveled slaves. We do know that Henry McNeil Turner, who was the missionary uh, African AME Church missionary who comes down to Georgia right after the end of the war doing political organization work for the Union League, he deliberately calls on his lieutenants to give you know, all of his campaign political Union League literature to black Teamsters. 
because he knows they can take it and deliver it around the countryside. But women are a really important part of the story in a way that totally caught me by surprise. I was just like dumbfounded when I started looking at the Savannah information. I was like, oh. <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to hear more about John Fremont. I'd like to know what tucks were that uh, Moses was transporting. And I'd also like to briefly say that one of my favorite enslaved people that George Washington and Martha had owned was named Moses. And there was a rule in Quaker, Pennsylvania, that if you were there for six months, but George or Martha wisely moved him out and he escaped. He, he bolted. The, yeah. the, the picture of him in Mount Vernon is from Europe. So I'd, lo I'd love to hear about what he, he had a skill. He was a gourmet chef. But I'd love to hear more about John Fremont pushing the envelope. Well, it's not so much John Fremont pushing the envelope as William Webb pushing the envelope because to be campaigning is, well, I mean, it's not like they were campaigning to gin up votes or something, but to hold rallies in support of John C. Fremont, who is Lincoln's predecessor in the Republican Party in 1856, tells us that these guys are, they know so much about what's going on in D.C., what's going on in the North, what's going on in these political parties, who's running for what and who they want to support. So this is what Webb is doing as he's moving around the Mississippi Valley is there's a lot of biblical imagery in his narrative and he talks about his apostles and he has 12 people and you know he kind of trains them and they go out and they train 12 more and 12 more and 12 more in this kind of this biblical kind of multiplying effect. And as he says, to get the message out to talk about the need to be free and the need to move in these directions. And they're doing this well before any Union soldier shows up on Southern soil. So I've worn you guys out? No, it's just... <laughs>